I have been kind of in a series called 2.0, where I've been taking foundational scripture uh, that we have really used as a foundation as a church and restudying it, just to make sure I didn't miss anything. So we did the, uh, the parable of the talents 2.0, talents 2.0, then the parable of the four soils 2.0, the thief on the cross 2.0, last week I never knew you 2.0. And um, I want to do one more this morning, and that is uh, the Great Commission or Make Disciples 2.0. I don't have the 2.0 there, okay? Um, so Make Disciples comes from the Great Commission. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he called his followers, and he gave us a job. Go into the world and make disciples. Now, I found some really, like, troubling statistics out there. George Barna is the guy who does all the, the Christian surveys, and he asked uh, churchgoers, have you heard of the Great Commission? Which is really our one job, you know? We're the one task that he has given us to do 51% of churchgoers said no. Never heard of the Great Commission. All right? And you go, well, at least the other 50% knows it. Well, no. 20, uh, 25% said, yes, I've heard of it, but I can't recall the exact meaning. So I've heard those words, but I have no idea what it means, or I can't remember. Right? Then another 6% said, I'm not so sure what it means. Leaving... Only 17% of churchgoers who even know that the main thing Jesus called us to do is go make disciples of other people. Okay, so you might wonder why the church in America is not doing that great. It might be because only 17% know the marching orders. Okay? But we have looked at this many times before. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus came and said to them, so he's risen from the dead. He's got his apostles and disciples in front of him. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, why is that important? Because he's not just sending, out, sending us out in our own power. He's sending us out in his power. And he is king of kings, lord of lords. He, is, uh, he has all authority. Right, that makes a difference. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You could sum up the task with those two words. Of all nations, right, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Have them take a public stand for me. Right, baptize them. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then a reminder, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, right? Go make disciples of the world, right? Not just believers, but obeyers, and do it in my authority, my power, and I will be with you, okay? Now, a lot of times, here, here we are 2,000 years later after Jesus gave this, a lot of times we equate the Great Commission with missions, and, and we should, Okay, we should think about missions, but let's not forget Acts 1.8, where, 
where he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. So Jerusalem uh, is where the church started. You'll be uh, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, call that the county, and in Samaria, now we're crossing cultural barriers and to the ends of the earth. So uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. It took the early church a while to catch on that it, it wasn't just Jerusalem, but they had to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Here, this morning, here's what I want to remind us of. While we are to be concerned with the rest of the world, let's not forget about home. I want to apply the Great Commission, make disciples, to our own families. All right, that's what I want to do here. I want to talk about how we all uh, should be involved in the process of making disciples of our children. Okay? So let's call this practical help in making disciples of our children. Now, in your bulletin, I've got four points. Cross out point four. We're not going to have time to cover point four. That's in my forthcoming book. Okay, cross out four. And then, instead of going one, two, three, four, here's the order we're going to go. Point two, three, one. You're like, well, this is too much. I can't handle this. All right, just, you can do it. So let's start with point two, which would be this. How, how do you uh, make disciples of your children? And I've, I've talked about this before. Let me just reemphasize it again. Make use of what's already in place in your church. Okay? We, we are, uh, especially evangelical Christians, seem to be uh, those who get excited about what's new. The newest curriculum, the newest book, the newest program. So we're always running after what's new. Um, Slow down. What about what's already in place in the church? How can you use that to help make disciples? So let me give you three things to think about. One, communion. Okay, I think I mentioned this a couple Sundays ago. Now, here at Valleybrook, we do communion. We have the Lord's Supper once a month. Um, some of you come from backgrounds where they have it every Sunday. How many of you from a background where they have had communion every Sunday? Okay. How many of you all your life it's just been once a month? Okay. There's some denominations, like the Mennonites, that do it two times a year or even once a year. It's so special. Right? Well, here, here's the philosophy. I think Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So you don't forget what I did for you on the cross. So I think you want to do it enough that you don't forget. I think you should do it more than once a year. Um, on the other hand, I think if you did it every week, you could fall into kind of a rote thing where, all right, we're doing communion again. Um, so a lot of evangelical churches do it one time a month, and it's usually the first Sunday of the month. So we, why, you say, why is that? Is that sacred? No, it's just so we don't forget, 
right? So that's, a, that's about how deep that thinking goes right there. Now, when we have communion, I always like to remind us, or occasionally remind us, uh, of three things. I say, um, you're welcome to come to the Lord's Supper, but these three things are three things you should examine yourself about. Am I a believer? Because it's the Lord's tup, Supper is an intimate meal with the Lord, with his followers. So if you're not a believer, you know, sometimes I'll say, just pass the elements by. We're glad you're here, but this is only for believers. Number two, that you have a repentant heart. What that means is if, uh, if you're living in some known sin, you know about it and you have no intention of changing, don't mock God by participating in the Lord's Supper. Okay? In other words, repent, don't pretend. Right? Then the third thing I say is this. Examine yourself to make sure you are living, uh, it's your intention to live uh, in harmony with your brothers and sisters uh, here in the church and in your own family. And some people, I think, have said, that's a weird thing. Why, why would you mention that at communion? Well, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, the whole reason Paul even brings up communion or the Lord's Supper is because there were factions in the Corinthian church. So he rebukes them for their factions by using, uh, by, by using communion, the meaning of communion, to make the point, and also pointing out that their factions were showing up during communion. Now, um, we do it very sterilely. We have the trays with the little cups and the little piece of bread. You've put on rubber gloves, and you don't want to get any germs or anything. Um, back in the first century, here's, church, was, church was a lot less formal, okay? And you go, we're pretty non-formal. Yes, we're very non-formal, but usually um, you met in somebody's house. People would bring a, a, a song. A prophet would stand up and give a prophecy. Others would judge it. There was, it was more like a small group than a formal service. I don't think they had bulletins or PowerPoint back then. Okay. But then they would have a potluck. Everybody would bring some food, and they called it a love feast. They would have a, a potluck. And then during the potluck, one of the pastors would stand up, and he would take bread, and he would take a whole loaf of bread and break it, and then they would pass it and each take a piece of bread, which represents the body of Christ. Then they would take the cup and probably drink from the same cup. Okay, we're appalled at that thought. But Paul goes on to explain, just as there's one loaf, there's one body. And then he says, you're destroying the picture of unity of the one loaf because of the factions that are in the church. So this is why he addresses them about communion. 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. All right? So 
in this meal that is supposed to be a picture of unity, you got, well, I'm going to eat with these people over here, and I'm going to eat over here, and I'm not going to wait for them, and let's, oh, you, you got some wine? And I guess this settles the question, that was it just grape juice or was it wine? Because they were getting drunk during communion. Okay? So Paul is appalled at their lack of love during communion. Now, then, then he goes into the, the idea behind communion, and Jesus instituted this, and the bread represents his body, the, the cup represents his blood. You're to examine yourselves. But the whole reason he gives uh, this advice, these commands on communion, is this. Here's what it comes down to. 1 Corinthians 11.33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. It's this profound teaching on the Lord's Supper. But the bottom line, it's very practical. Don't be such a slob. Don't be so inconsiderate. Wait for one another. Love one another. Okay? So that is why... I always say, okay, make sure you're a believer. Check your heart. See if you have a repentant heart. Number three, check your heart to see if it's your desire to live in unity. Because unity is the whole reason Paul brings up the Lord's Supper. Okay? Um, now, what you say, how does this tie into discipling our children? In our family, we have always used communion as a unity check. We know it's coming up. We know that we're going to remember what Jesus did for us. We know one of the check marks is, is there disunity? And usually either the night before or in the car or even right over here in the huddle, we, we say, are we all right with each other? Is there a problem? Let's get it figured out before we take communion. So here's the practical application. God has given you a built-in thing on the calendar to check in with each other, to, to, to make sure that you uh, have short accounts, especially in your own family. Use what's already there. Right? So, are you using communion as an aid uh, to, to promote unity in your family? Right? Let me give you a second thing. Cotton balls. Okay? Cotton balls. You go, what are you talking about? You ever notice when your kids come out of children's church or kids connect, a lot of times they have a handout, and there's always cotton balls and popsicle sticks. Right? I, they've been around forever. I think Cain and Abel came home from Sunday school and said, Here, Mom! And it was a parchment with popsicle sticks and cotton balls. Some of you are like, Is he crazy today? No. He's trying to lighten things up. Um, so, what that is, <laughs> some of you look at it and you go, I have no idea what that is. Oh, little Cain, I know. You created, you did cre creation before God created. The world was formless and void, and you did a picture of formless and void, you know. 
because some of their art projects you don't know. Um, or, you, or there's popsicle sticks and you go, oh, you learned about Noah's Ark. And they go, no, no, that's baby Jesus in the manger. Right? Um, but here's the point. The teacher has planned a lesson, taught them some scripture. They may have had puppets. They may have had a, 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 a little drama that they acted out. And if they have a craft, it's to help them remember the Bible lesson. Now, here's my big suggestion. Rather than just tossing that out, or here's what happens in a lot of cases, it ends up under the driver's seat of your car. There's about 12 years of popsicle sticks under there, right? What if you gave each of your kids an opportunity to share what they learned in their class with the rest of the family, okay? So rather than just dispensing of it, they each get a turn to explain what they learned. Now, a lot of times they're not going to get it right because somebody was tugging on their clothes and they didn't pay attention. So here's your opportunity to reinforce the lesson. Okay? Now, um, let's, let's say they don't get a handout. Um, or let's say they, they go to youth group, or let's say they go to connection time. What if, what if you made this a habit in your family? Everybody who goes to some learning event in the church gets an opportunity to summarize what they learned. Now, that includes you in the sermon. So, I, I hope... I hope you don't just sit here, take notes, toss it out, and that's the end of it. I hope you do some processing with your family about the sermon. Not, and I don't mean roast the pastor. Um, sometimes for, for Sunday, Sunday lunch, it's mom roasts the meat and dad roasts the sermon. Um, no, what, what I'm talking about is processing what you learn. What if it was this? Every time a child of yours or you go to an event at church where there's some teaching of the Bible, small group, Sunday morning, children's church, they get an opportunity to try to summarize what they learned and teach it to the rest of the family. Now, not only does this help them remember, but it passes the lesson on to everybody in the family, and it gets them in the habit of listening to tell, All right? Listening to tell. They know after a while that you're going to ask them, what did you learn? And they have to pay attention, and they have to practice trying to tell what they've learned, all right? So think about that. First of all, we've got communion as, a, as something already laid out for you. What about the cotton balls and the popsicle sticks? Can you use that to reinforce the lesson? And then here's a third one. Church family. Okay? Um, here's your church family. Paul uses the word brother. I, I said this on, on uh, Easter Sunday. Paul uses the word brother how many times in his letters? Anybody remember? 
250. Who got that? Who said that? I said 202. Oh, 202. Okay. Add uh, 58 more, or 48 more, and you, you got it right. Okay. 250 times the Apostle Paul addresses people in his letters as brothers. He sees the church as the family of God. He hasn't been to Rome yet, yet in his letter to the Romans, chapter 16, he names 33 people that he wants to say hi to. Say hi to Priscilla and Aquila and this person and that person. What that tells you is um, he didn't just see it as the masses. The, the church was his family. So here's a simple question I want to ask you. Does your church involvement communicate to your children that you're part of a family or just that you go to church? Okay, world of difference. It's good that you go to church, go to the church service, but there's a world of difference between we need to go to church versus growing up part of a church family. Now, that actually puts in perspective, um, you know, we have announcements, and we've got like a, like a service day coming up. Now, not everybody can make it to the service day. But do you automatically go, nope, not interested? Or do you go, you know, what would that communicate to my kids about being involved in the family of God? What would a small group, what would Wednesday night communicate about being involved in the family of God? Okay? So, I, and I, I don't want to lay this, this guilt trip on you. You must be involved in absolutely everything. Nobody can. But what message are you communicating about this being a family? All right? So, that's, that's the first point. Um, Make use of what's already laid out at your church, okay? Number two, make use of good gospel-focused resources for family devotions, okay? Um, now, when we were growing up, I was talking to Caitlin the other day, and she goes, Dad, you know what I loved? I loved Bible time when we were growing up. And um, you know what Bible time, Bible time is? Before we go to bed, we're going to have a little Bible story. We're going to read the Bible. And then we would always try to act something out. Like, um, you know, Jesus tells the parable of the woman who, who has ten coins. And she lost a coin. So she swept the house and tried to find it. And when she found it, she rejoiced and she had a party. Right Now, don't forget to connect that to what the point is. The point is, when God finds a lost person, there is great rejoicing in heaven. Okay? But we would take ten pennies, and one of them would go out, out the room, close the door, and the other two would hide a penny somewhere in the room. And then the other one would come in and try to find the penny. Warmer, war cold, and we would do that. And if, uh, if ever I ran out of material, we would just play the lost penny. Okay? Um, 
Now, you go, that's great, but you're a pastor and you know the Bible and you have all these clever little tricks that you do. No, I ran out after about a week of, of that. So I want to just give you some uh, a suggestion of how you can have a consistent Bible time with your kids. And, and I just want to mention a resource that you could use. Now, you know me, I am very big on um, trying to find something that's going to take you to the cross, that's going to take you to the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But not only is the gospel... See, you know what? There's a lot, of, a lot of Bible times that go on in a lot of homes where they learn facts. They learn about the story of Noah and the story of Moses and uh, the story of King David. But it's just facts. It doesn't connect to the gospel. I think it's possible to connect everything to the gospel. Paul did. Paul says... For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, so wherever Paul went, that's all he talked about was Jesus crucified. He, was die- he died, he rose from the dead. Believe in him. That's all he talked. No. What he's, what he's saying is everything flows out of that. So when you're teaching the Bible, use whatever you're teaching to point back to the gospel. Now, the gospel is not only the power of God for salvation, it's the power of God for sanctification, for for growing in your walk with the Lord. You say, how does that work? Well, the power for living a God-pleasing life comes from constantly being reminded that our acceptance before God is not based on our performance, but it's based on Christ. He lived a perfect life in my place. He died my death on the cross. I believe in him, and God sees me as forgiven and perfect. And that motivates me to want to obey him. A lot of Christians do this. Well, we go to the cross to get saved, And now that we got that out of the way, let's get on with real mature Christian living with the list of rules. And what you end up with is a bunch of Christians who in their own flesh are trying to please God, but there's no power, right? So all this to say, um, I want to suggest a curriculum that you can use that takes you back to the cross, all the time, okay? Um, Jesus did this, and when he's walking down the road, on the road to Emmaus, he meets the two disciples, and it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what did, what did you think Jesus thought the theme of the Old Testament was? Him. How does everything point to Jesus? Now, um, you've seen this book before, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's just a, a, a compilation of Bible stories, Old and New Testament, 
There's pictures. They're not that great pictures, but they're pictures. Okay. You like the pictures? Yeah, they're scary. Look at Jesus. I mean, all right. Um, but um, here's, here's why I, I, if, if I were uh, a, a president of a Bible college and it's freshman initiation day, I would say y'all need to get this book and read it to learn how to connect everything in the Bible back to Jesus. So let, let me give you, for example, the story of uh, Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him, but then there's a ram caught in the thicket, and uh, God says, you can put the, the lamb, the ram, on the altar, and Isaac goes free. Um, now, you can just tell that story. You can act it out. You can go get a knife, you know. Um, But what's it have to do with the gospel? Here's how she ends the story. Many years later, another son would climb another hill. Some people think it's the exact same hill. Right? Carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Oh, so that whole story points to Jesus, okay? Um, what about Joseph? Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons. His brothers hate him. They sell him into slavery for some pieces of silver. He's falsely accused. He is persecuted. But God raises him from the pit to be the prime minister of Egypt. He sets up a program that saves the world from starvation. What's that have to do with Jesus? One day, God would send another ruler who would be hated, sold for silver, punished, <clears throat> even though he hadn't done anything wrong. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good, the salvation of the whole world. See, it points to Jesus. What about the Ten Commandments? Okay, And we all do this. We turn every commandment in the Bible into a try harder, try harder. And, and that is true. We should try harder to fight against sin, okay? But don't forget that the Apostle Paul said the law was never intended to save you. It was intended to point to the Savior. So here's how the Ten Commandments section ends. God's rules could never be kept perfectly by humans. Only one person could keep the rules, and God sent him to stand in our place so that we could be saved. Okay, we did the life of David. Remember, it starts off with Samuel going to David's house, and he's just the youngest brother, and he's supposed to anoint the next king, and it's not the oldest brother. It's not the next. They, they go... Samuel says, is there another brother? Yeah, there's just little David, but he can't be the guy. Well, he's the guy. He's anointed to be the next king. What's the point? God told Samuel to go to Bethlehem to find and anoint Israel's next king, David. One day, a new king would be born in Bethlehem. He would be the savior of the world. Okay? Now, um, so, so you might want to just get that book to see how she does it. But now, um, there's another set of books that we have stumbled onto, and actually we didn't stumble onto them, 
Um, your children's director, Ashley, who's not in the room. Is she in the room? No. Um, she's really good. Right? She's really good at what she does. And she's listened over the years to this Christ-centered approach and she has found some great resources. So when your kids are being taught a Bible lesson in there or wherever they are, right, um, they're using this curriculum that connects everything back to Jesus. So this is Marty Machowski. And here's another gospel story Bible book. It's very similar to, to the other one, maybe a little, little more advanced, Okay. And he does the same thing, where he connects everything to Jesus. Now, um, so, so our curriculum that Ashley is using with your kids is based on a curriculum on, on lessons covering the entire Bible. So over a three-year period, your kids will, will gain knowledge of the entire Bible. Okay? But there's an at-home version. This is called Long Story Short, and this is called Old Story New. And these are little family devotions that you can do with your kids, a uh, little 10 minutes, and, and these are broken up into weeks. So let's say the story of, of Abraham and Isaac is the, the, the story for the week. You're going to read part of it on Monday and then another part on Tuesday. There's going to be questions. There'll be su suggestions for activities and so forth. But you've covered that story. Now, I'm going to just throw this out as a suggestion. What if you contacted Ashley and said, I'd like to line up what we're going to do at home with what you're doing in there. So they're going to learn the lesson on Sunday, and then we're going to reinforce it throughout the rest of the week. Right? Now, these are $20 a piece. You can get the Kindle version. I checked it this morning. One of them's like $13.99, and the other one's $2.99. I don't know why. Right? Maybe there's just one left, but if you do it right now, hurry up, Google it. $2.99, you can get the Kindle version. Okay? Now, one last thought here. There's this book called Theology, but it's really theology. Right? Same guy. And really what this is, is systematic theology for kids. So you can go out and get Wayne Grudem's thousand-page blue systematic theology book, which I'd encourage you to do. Right? Or you can buy this and work through these lessons with your kids. So... Uh, just like a systematic theology book is broken up into a theology of God, of, pe of people, of sin, of the law, of Christ, the Holy Spirit, God's family, that's a church, of change, that's sanctification, oh, here's the church, uh, end times, the Bible. Um, if you cover all this, if, if you as a family go through the Old Testament, the New Testament, and this theology book, you will know more than 99% of other Christians and maybe more than 99% of other pastors. Okay? So there you go. You say, oh, I don't know how to do it. I don't have any resources. That's a suggestion uh, to, to start with. Now, let me close with point one. Point one. You go, you know, I, th I think I'm going to try this disciple-making thing. I might try this. 
The point one is this. Making disciples in our home is something we are already doing. You are already making disciples. Okay? The, the question is not, should I make disciples? The question is, what kind of disciples are we already making? You know, think about when Jesus called his first disciples. Uh, he's walking along the seashore of Galilee. He sees um, James and John and Peter and Andrew, and he calls them to follow him. They drop their nets, and they literally follow him. And they live with him, right? So, so yes, they learned from him, from the sermons he would preach, the Sermon on the Mount and so forth, and the parables. <clears throat> but they also learned by watching him. In fact, that's probably primarily how they learned, through observing Jesus, interact with people and deal with situations, okay? So... Your kids have an hour in there, maybe an hour on Wednesday night. That's two hours out of the week, but you're with them how many hours? What are you doing to model the Christian life? Now, three questions. These are little hooks to, to kind of test yourself. And there's a million things we could cover, so... There's no rhyme or reason why I'm choosing these particular three. But um, here's three questions. Question number one, do they ever see me apologize? You say, well, wait, wait a minute. I don't like to apologize. I know. Who does? Right? But I don't ever see Jesus apologize. <laughs> He's Jesus. You're not. It's a little reminder. But if they see us teaching the Bible, quoting the Bible, being involved in church, but never humbling ourselves and saying, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I've, I've sinned against you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. You know what we might be, be modeling? How to be a Pharisee. How to be a self-righteous Pharisee. You know... Um, I'll share this with you. Uh, my wife and I love each other. Um, we have been married for 29 years, right? Once or twice we argued. Okay. All right, so, you know, we're, it's sometimes we, we do things that irritate one another. And uh, I, will, I will admit that uh, there's, there was a long period of time when I would just go beyond having an argument to getting ugly, right? And one day, I just got convicted that that is so wrong. And um, I said to her, and I, I, I didn't even, I think she knew I was under conviction, and um, I just said, I am so sorry. And she forgave me. And then we, we said, you know, um, maybe I should tell the kids that this isn't the way I should be talking to you. And it wasn't a big family meeting. It was just, I just want you guys to know 
that I've been convicted of this, and um, this isn't how you should have an argument with your wife. Then I taught him how to have a real argument, you know, right? Um, but if your kids, if, if it's all head knowledge, but they never see the humility, you could be teaching them to be a bunch of Pharisees. Now, let me add to this. Do they ever see you repent? Well, you go, what's the difference between apology and repentance? Well, apologizing is saying, I'm sorry. Repenting is a supernatural change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. Okay? If you're just modeling apology, you're teaching them to have manners. If you're modeling repentance, you know what you're showing them? The supernatural power of God, that God is real in your house. Okay? Um, I haven't seen the movie, I can only imagine, but I've seen the trailer about 500 times. Okay? And I think the trailer actually sums this up quite well. So I'm going to show you the trailer. Um, do I, are we good? Should I click it again? No, okay, all right, here we go. It's an amazing song. Just kind of happened. Took about 10 minutes, I guess. Bart, you didn't write this song in 10 minutes. Took a lifetime. How'd you do this? You know, I've never told anybody my story. When I was uh, 11 years old, life was tough. Where's Mama? She's gone. She don't want me no more. No! And she don't want you neither. And I've always loved music. And I found some songs that I just, I held on to. They gave me hope. Mercy me, that can't be his real voice. Because I needed it. Dad, I can do this. No, you can't. And you're going to blink your eyes, and you're going to realize that life has gotten you nowhere because you chased some stupid dream. I can I'm leaving. Shit. What it will be like. I want you to know that I pray for you all the time. When I walk. And I hope that you find whatever it is that you're looking for out there. What are you running from? My dad. Then write about it. Let that pain become your inspiration. I have some stuff I need to sort out, and I deal with it the only way I know how, and that's to write a song. You hungry? I set the table. What is this? I want to make things right. <laughs> you and me. My dad was a monster, and I saw God transform him. You have a gift, real gift. I didn't think that God could do that. And so I wrote this song for my dad.
My dad was a monster, and I saw God transform him. Now, I hope your kids don't say the monster part, but can they say, I saw God transform him? Do they ever see me apologize? Number two, do they see my Bible-saturated heart? Here's a classic verse on parents teaching children, Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, here's what, what we like to do. We like to program that. We like to turn that into a discipleship program. So as we drive in the car, I have these cards that I bought from a Deuteronomy ministry, and we're going to talk about the Bible formally as we drive to school today. I don't, I don't think verse 7 is a program. I think verse 7 is the natural result of verse 6. And verse 6 says, These words that I command you shall be on your heart. And you know, what's ever on your heart, you got to talk about it. Right? This is, this is not a start, a start a drive to school Bible talking program. This is a fill your heart with scripture so much that it just naturally has to come out of your mouth. Right? We have to talk about that which we love. I, one of my favorite stories when Josh was growing up, he had a friend uh, named Danny. And he and Danny just, like, when they're 10 or 11, what do you talk about? Well, they loved Taco Bell. And uh, one day, I'm walking by, and I hear, I don't know if it was Josh or Danny, I heard one of them go, Josh, what do you think about a burrito with bacon? <laughs> they just talk about what's on their heart, Right? Could you be a Cub fan and watch that World Series game without talking about it the next day? Right. What this is saying, now, now you go, well, I thought this was going to be three easy points so my kids will become Christian. No, this is hard. This is fill your mind and heart so much with Scripture that it just comes out of your mouth. Okay. Last Point. Do they know I'm for them? You know, um, you can sit through this sermon. You can go to a whole conference on uh, discipling your children, and you can buy the latest devotional book and the latest program. But if they don't think you like them, it's not going to work. I think if you were to ask a lot of kids, why don't you pay attention to what your parents are teaching about Christianity? They might, if they were honest, say, because my parents don't like me and I don't want to listen to what they have to say. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying 
knuckle under and do whatever you can so they like you. No, you're to discipline them. You're to have standards. You're to have rules. But either they know you like them and love them or they don't. Now, here's what I've found. Usually people who have horizontal relationship issues can trace it back to a vertical relationship issue. In other words, if you don't firmly believe that God likes you, then you're going to have a mess horizontally. So the bigger question here is this. Do you think God is for you? Do you believe that he is for you? You know, I, I was raised in a religion where I saw God as the big referee in the sky keeping points. There wasn't love there. It was judgment. It was keeping score. And if you did X amount, then he would begrudgingly give you some grace. Okay? And then I understood the gospel, that it's not about my performance, that it's about Christ's performance, and you know what? It didn't all magically go away. But this verse, which, which some of you have memorized and means very little to you, means the world to me. Paul, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's for me. He's on my side. I think I've shared this before, but I think of two football coaches that I've had. One was this old school football coach and he would coach by yelling and screaming and hitting you in the helmet and he'd pull the kid out of the, out of the game in front of all the bleachers and grab that kid by the face mask and just yell at him in front of all the parents. And you played football out of fear of the coach more than love of the game. Okay. Then there was another coach I had and um, you could just tell his whole demeanor was different. He was a, he was a tough guy. He was a, a, a weightlifter. But you could tell he was for you. When we would lose, we'd have extra wind sprints. But he would do them with us because he's on the team. Right? Um, I remember one, my one picture of him that I remember is we had practice one day, and it was raining, and it was muddy, and we were all covered with mud and blood and worms, and it was just disgusting, right? And he was running a drill where a bunch of us on the line would be in a huddle, and he called a play, and we had to block it. And he goes, okay, break. He kind of talked like Rocky. And um, so we're all running up to the line, and he goes, oh, wait a minute, Smitty, come here. He called me Smitty. And I go, Run back. I go, yeah, coach? And back then, I had a mop of a head of, a head of hair. I mean, it was just all over the place. Right? Yeah, I got pictures. <laughs> and um, so I got all this mud all over me. But there was a hair hanging, like, in front of my eye. And he goes, come here, Smitty. Yeah, coach? 
Okay, go. <laughs> it's just a, one of those little weird things, but you know what it says? I like you guys. You had a hair in front of your eye. It could affect your blocking. <laughs> Take it out. Now go. All right. Um, do you see God as for you? So you go, all right, I'm going to go home and be for my kids. Great, be for your kids. But do you realize that God is for you? Let that transform you. And then pass that on to your kids. All right? Let's pray. Lord, as... Uh, we train up our children. We realize we are already discipling them in how we live in front of them. Um, Lord, we fail, but even that can be a lesson. So, Lord, I pray for our, our children that as they um, are part of this church and as they learn in uh, Sunday school and in kids' club and in uh, VBS and all the elements of church that you would use our teachers to help disciple them. But Lord, I pray most of all for the parents, that as, as we live the Christian life in front of them and speak of your word, that you would melt their hearts, that they would fall in love with Jesus, and that you would be glorified in this generation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.